Welcome once again to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. These forums present the views of members of the same high school class from a very special school in New York City, Regis High School. My name is Richard Gazer, and I'm pleased and honored to once again be your host and commentator and to be a member of that class. Now, you're listening to us as either a podcast or as a radio loop. Links to both are available at our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, or pick us up wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Center Left Radio. Back on February 7th, we did a Noble Hearts Forum on Russia and Ukraine at a time when Russia was building up troops around the Ukrainian border. And the common wisdom was that Russia wasn't really going to be attacking. It, that would be crazy. I mean, they were just posturing. And so our forum dealt largely with Russo-Ukrainian relations and the historic and ethical context for a potential American response to whatever it was Russia was doing. By and large, the panel agreed that the U.S. lacked any ethical foundation for pretty much any level of involvement in what was seen as a largely regional dispute. But there was one notable exception. One of our panelists from that forum, Dr. Charles Webel, posed a hypothetical. What exactly would the U.S. and NATO do if Russia actually attacked Ukraine and, and hypothetically decided to go further, say, attack one or several of the Balkan states while threatening nuclear war if anyone dared get in the way. Charles's hypothetical didn't get much traction at the time, although the entire panel agreed we needed to revisit this topic in the not far distant future. Now, today is March 11th, 2022, and February 7th feels as though it could have happened in another geologic era. War has a way of doing that, fogging things up and rendering all manner of well-considered hypotheticals, well. It also has a way of dredging up uh, unsavory memories from a collective past, memories of duck and cover, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, Vietnam, and all those fear-inducing things that we thought or imagined we had put behind us. Now, fortunately, we have the perfect Noble Hearts Forum panel to make sense of all this, and all of them are veterans of these microphones. The aforementioned Dr. Charles Webel is joining us once again from Prague. Charles is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague. A five-time Fulbright Scholar, he's published 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He's currently working on volume two of his three-book trilogy, modestly entitled The Fate of This World and the Future of Humanity, as well as a novel, Academia, spelled with three Ks, The Mind Reels. Bill Arnone, who hasn't visited these microphones for a few years now, is a founder and the chief executive officer of the National Academy of Social Insurance, a major thought leader and information distributor within the interdisciplinary field of social insurance, which includes social security, Medicare, unemployment, workers' comp, and several related programs. I would strongly urge you 
to visit the Academy's website, www.nasi.org. It will mark the beginnings of a long overdue reorientation to the critical role of social insurance in all our lives. Bill's also an attorney and spent 15 years as a partner at Ernst & Young, and before that as a partner at Buck Consultants. And if I start getting into his political activities, I will be accused very quickly of name-dropping some of the biggest names in modern democratic political history, so we'll just leave it at that. Bill Mulligan is Professor Emeritus at Murray State University. He's taught U.S. and world history, and perhaps most relevant to today's discussion, U.S. military history for the past 20 years. He's the author of several books and dozens of scholarly articles and presentations. He was also a Fulbright Scholar in Ireland and just received a Hibernian Research Award from the Kushwa Center at Notre Dame University to support his research on the Irish diaspora. John Cugini is our link to the high-tech world. After graduating from Columbia with a major in philosophy, he spent eight years as a programmer and instructor for the U.S. Army, picking up a master's degree in computer science along the way, and then spent nearly 30 years working for the National Bureau of Standards, shepherding all manner of programs and projects, everything from graphics and visualization to, to voting systems. But I'm told he's not beyond forgetting the occasional date or occasional password or two. Uh, I was hoping we'd once again have one or two Russian or Ukrainian students joining us, but uh, with Mr. Putin's predictable clampdown on public expression of anything but the Kremlin's official line, our students understandably felt a bit nervous about expressing uh, different opinions. So where to start? Charles Webel has recently published an article. It's entitled, The Ukraine Crisis, Past, Present, and Future. The word future followed by a question mark. I'd like to read the first two sentences of that article. Is the Ukraine crisis, is the Ukraine crisis a turning point in world history? And is this also a potential wake-up call for the, quote, liberal American-dominated Western world order, close quote, due to a conflict whose significance is comparable to and potentially greater than 9-11? Charles, that's how you started it. Please take it in any direction you'd like. I wish I could finish it and say no and no, but unfortunately, I'm morally obliged to tell the truth, which is very unusual in Eastern Europe, and say probably and maybe. Hmm. So probably part is I'd like to read the next paragraph, if I may. Sure. Uh, which has a series of questions, and then I pose three alternative scenarios. The next paragraph starts, will the current crisis, meaning in Ukraine, further empower the rise and global spread of authoritarian regimes, including those of Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and possibly in 1924, uh, alert, alert, Americans, of Donald Trump as well. Will Russia's deployment of state terrorism in Chechnya, Syria, Moldova, 
and now in Ukraine, lead with accelerated global warming and the still raging COVID-19 pandemic to an existential crisis for humankind in particular and for this planet as a whole. Um, again, I'd like to answer if I, I take the liberty my own questions in a modal mode, which is probably, possibly, meaning the global spread of authoritarian regimes will be accelerated by this crisis for all kinds of reasons we could get into. And Russia's deployment of state terrorism possibly could lead to an existential crisis for humankind and for planet Earth. And the reasons for that are three letters, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, just before the beginning of this program, I was watching on the BBC a live broadcast from the UN Security, or I would call it Insecurity Council. And the pretext for the meeting was the declaration by um, Kremlin polemicists that Ukraine has biological and or chemical laboratories mm. that may be the basis for the release of various pathogens in Ukraine. And their so-called evidence for this assertion was the so-called discovery by Russian liberators of um, a wrecked lab where Ukrainian scientists had allegedly been performing experiments with biological weapons. The uh, representative, permanent representative to the UN from Ukraine, as well as the permanent representative to the UN from the United Kingdom, uh, both stated unequivocally, uh, this is completely false. And furthermore, as uh, the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky said, whatever Russia says we are doing is exactly what Russia is doing. Hmm. So whether they're doing it or not, we will see, unfortunately. And uh, I'm in a, a city about a thousand kilometers west of the, the action, let's put it this way, in Ukraine. And if the wind blows west, this area will be directly affected again from either uh, the contamination from a ruptured nuclear power plant and or the use of theater nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, so, yes, there is a danger of the usage of biological and chemical weapons by Russia, not by Ukraine, and also of theater, meaning local uh, nuclear weapons in Ukraine, possibly elsewhere. The question is, and this is the question I would like to put to this panel, if this happens, what should be the West's response? This question was asked multiple times yeah in various press conferences today and yesterday, two representatives from the French, uh, American, and British governments, and they all dodged it. I hope we will not dodge it. 
I hope we will have an intelligent discussion about how the West should respond or could respond. Those are two different issues. If the situation in Ukraine escalates, as I predict it will, uh, to such a degree that NATO's deterrent, meaning that Russia so far has deterred NATO from further intervention because of the nuclear threat, mm. how far should that extend? What is the West willing to abide regarding what happens in Ukraine and elsewhere in Eastern Europe uh, before it responds more forcefully? Yeah. Phyllis, could I uh, take the first shot at that? But before I do, Bill Arnone, just recall, yeah. Yeah, recall uh, the bond that we have, the Regis class of 66, as we were on the verge of entering that uh, wonderful high school. We were glued to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis that Rich referred to. And I thought that night the world was going to end. I thought President Kennedy was going to come on television and say, it's too late, the bombs are heading our way. Um, uh, say a prayer for our world. Uh, I've never felt that feeling since then, until now. Part of it, I think, is living in Washington, D.C., where you've got to figure, depending on your view of nuclear strategy, uh, the capital of the enemy would be a prime target. But I really feel in my bones that we could be at that, which you described, uh, Charles, as an existential threat. My only quibble with how you framed it is if the response is the West, I think already we're getting off to the wrong solution. I think it's got to be more than the so-called traditional alliance of the United States and the European Union and NATO. And to me, the wild card in all this remains China. Uh, I think China makes the difference in the response of the world uh, to what we're seeing in the Ukraine. And maybe this is a naivete, but I think uh, China has more to lose from Russia's success than they have to win. And I, my hope is that uh, Xi sees this and will be a surprising force to counter what is happening in the uh, Ukraine today. But it could be just wishful thinking. I think it is wishful thinking. The Chinese uh, permanent representative to the UN just spoke on the same panel uh, as the other representatives. And of course, he was calling more or less for peace of our time and for non-intervention and for diplomacy. And that was it. At what point is Russia going to be unable to sustain Bill Mulligan? what they're doing, given the sanctions that are hitting, as the sanctions begin to hit, how are they going to, I mean, in one hand, you can argue that was a viable way to try to get them to stop. If they don't have the money to, to su supply equipment, to fund troops, we've already seen they, they apparently can't maintain supply lines. It's one of the most inept invasions uh, in, in recent memory in terms of not being able to maintain supply lines, keep their troops fed. There's all kinds of reports of troops just sort of walking away from their vehicles and, um, and that's both good and that it suggests that this may well bog down to nothing. But then what does Putin do? I don't see Putin saying, oops, I made a mistake and withdrawing. And I think it ups the ante to use a chemical or nuclear weapons. And I guess at what point, if we don't stop him at that point, because we're afraid he'll use them against us, 
we might as well just, you know, fold our hand. I'm not sure we're running out of good options unless someone in Russia takes out Putin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to. John uh, Cugini. I, I, I find myself in uh, unusual agreement with, uh, with a lot of my fellow panelists. Uh, I'd like to break down the two cases of conventional versus, and I'll include even chemical and biological versus nuclear war, which I think is a sort of a different level. At the conventional level, to remind everybody what everyone already knows, you know, the population of the United States is about 300 million. The NATO countries, there's another three or 400 million. Russia's 145. We've got five times as many people as them, and the economy is at least 10 times theirs. From a conventional point of view, there's really no, no problem there. They should be, you know, Putin should be more afraid of us than we are of them. And I don't think he'll move against NATO. I don't think he'll move against a NATO country. I think Biden was smart to lay out a, a marker from which even he can't retreat, not one inch of, of territory. Okay, Putin, you know, you want Latvia? Go for it. And we would have to respond. I don't think there's any way we could do these. And conventionally, I'm actually not. I don't love war, but I'm not as worried about that. If Putin goes full Dr. Strangelove and drops a nuke on Lviv, at that point, I, I, all bets are off. I, I, I can't say that I, I, I would know what to do. Uh, it would seem at that point maybe even the Chinese decide they don't want a lunatic in charge of another couple of thousand nuclear weapons. Um, it, it, at that point, I don't think there there is a good answer. The game's already already lost by that point. But at a conventional level, I mean, it's good to just remind ourselves that Russia is not that big of a power. Am I wrong? Conventionally, no. But they have, no. as you mentioned, yeah, a huge yeah. nuclear arsenal. Right. Yeah. And, and well, how do you use that? We think they do. Uh, yeah. well, it's interesting. Have, few, sure, have they been? Uh, have do have they had the funding yeah. to keep it up to date? I mean, you, you just don't store those things away for thirty years and then take them out when you need them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have yeah. they had? Have they had the ability to maintain that? And can they maintain the delivery systems as their economy collapses? Yeah, I think the sanctions are beginning to. There's been reports today. A number of the oligarchs are beginning to. Um, question Putin, and they, of course, I guess, have the maybe they're probably safely out of Russia to do it, but um, you know, his his house of cards is about to collapse, and yeah. and will the generals let him take, you know, the world down with him, or will someone step in? Oh. I mean, the one yeah. thing that this reminded me of, I don't know if any, how many of you have read um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison when he meditates upon the morality of murdering Hitler hmm. and actually yeah. uh, joined the conspiracy to kill Hitler. Uh, you know, is it, is it really a more, more immoral to kill one person where by killing that one person you save millions of people? You sound like Lindsey Graham, my girl. <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> well, Bonhoeffer is, you know, Bonhoeffer took the last boat back from New York uh, to Germany yeah. to join the resistance against Hitler. And was hung. They caught him, and he was hung. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's a little bit... I don't think he's in the Lindsey Graham class. I think Bonhoeffer's actually a real uh, <laughs> a real person yeah. to, to think about when they say things. Yeah. And, uh, let, me, uh, uh, let me lay out another scenario that I think is 
somewhere in the middle of the bell curve of probability and, and see what you guys think. Um, you know, we went for many years having East Germany and West Germany and North Korea and South Korea. And I can imagine the, the Russians through pure persistence and willingness to bomb everybody into submission, kind of taking over most of these, let's call it the Kniper River, taking over East Ukraine, sitting there and then calling it a day, say, okay, that's it. We've, we've got what we want. And, you know, you, you guys that have, Zelensky, you guys that have retreated to the West, in the interest of peace, we're just going to leave you alone. So it's your move. We're just going to sit here in the East and you guys can can have West Ukraine if you like it. And now what are you going to do about it? Mm. And we have another another divided country. I mean, that's kind of, the, that was the pattern of the Cold War. And uh, that's that's kind of an end game for Putin where he could say, well, I got something out of it. You know, I didn't, you know, all those thousands of Russian soldiers didn't die in vain. And I'm not sure, you know, Ukraine, as we know, is not a NATO country. I'm not sure what the West would, would do about it. Uh, maybe, maybe nothing. Maybe everyone would just accept that as the least bad outcome. Is that a is that a viable uh, pathway, or people think that then could happen? Why would they be advancing on Kiev as I speak? The latest report is they're yeah. within five miles of the center of Kiev, so that's the least likely outcome from my point of view. It's the most desirable and the least likely. Okay. What's the most likely? I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. Bill Mulligan. What no, you Charles. I thought John asked Charles a question, so yeah. like this Charles answered. What's the most likely? I'm asking Charles. <clears throat> oh, I see. Uh, the most likely is the unknown. It sounds like a joke, but it's true yeah. because I've met Putin, I've chatted with Putin, and mm. he is the quintessential realist. Unless there's a huge unless, unless he feels he's losing control. And if he feels he's losing control, if he feels the minimal objectives, which you just pointed out, of securing, from Russia's point of view, eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, if those minimalist objectives are not met, he will lash out. If he doesn't get Kiev, he will destroy it in order to save it, to use the rhetoric of the United States during the Vietnam War. If there is a coup attempt or a plot against him, whose odds of success are, I say, unknown, but not unprecedented, happened in 1953 against Beria, Khrushchev was deposed, and so on and so forth, it's, it's rife in Russian history, that doesn't eliminate the problem. The Russian system, the Russian nomenclature, has been recreated in Putin's image and with the ideology of, forgive my language, one Russia, and that one Russia includes Ukraine, all of Ukraine. Now, can they take all of Ukraine through the use of conventional force alone? Yeah, good question. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. The answer is unknown. They couldn't hold Afghanistan. They can take it, but they can't hold it. Mm -hmm. So what happens if they do take even the eastern third of Ukraine, but can't hold it? They have an Afghanistan scenario 2.0. At that point, Putin is extremely susceptible uh, 
to being terminated with extreme prejudice. But the Russian uh, military industrial complex remains along with the ideologists of that conflict. And I think they will wait for a second chance. I think the most likely scenario is they will attempt to take all of Ukraine with conventional weapons. They will probably take much of Ukraine with conventional weapons, but will not be able to hold much of Ukraine due to guerrilla warfare and subversion. At that point, are they going to have a cut and run scenario whereby it becomes Afghanistan 2.0? I don't so what, know. What exactly is Putin's objective? Is it the restoration of the Soviet Union or is it more than that? I don't read Putin's mind, but having met him and being a psychoanalyst, I would say up to a certain point, he's very much a political realist. He will take as much as he can without sacrificing more than he wishes. Concretely, that means if he can get all of Ukraine conventionally, he will do it. If he can't, then he has to raise the stakes. And do the stakes mean a spiral of escalating violence that he can no longer control? Because first, he can't control the resistance in Ukraine. And second, and this I want to go back to my initial question, how long can he deter his opponents in the West and elsewhere from raising the ante on their side leading to a race to oblivion. I don't know. Um, I don't think he knows either. I don't think, to answer your question, he has a grand strategy beyond what I just mentioned. I oh, John, I, uh, I watched I, twice his uh, lengthy uh, presentation. The first time I watched it, it was with a Russian translator who did such a poor job, I concluded that Putin was incoherent, and over the edge. No, then I he's, not, to, he's not and, crazy. This is a mistake. Yes, that yes. It's wishful thinking to think that he's crazy or yes. he's not. So I went back and watched it a second time with the official Russian transcript below in English, and I saw a much different uh, Putin. Uh, it was clearly thought, clearly revisionist, yes. but not a madman by any stretch of the no. imagination. I don't know which made me feel better, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> the first or the second, but... I was convinced yeah. he has thought this through. Let me let me throw out another topic. So, given where we are, leaving the, you know history, we could all replay history and do things differently. But given where we are today, um, do we feel that uh, the response of the West and I guess America in particular, Biden's response, has been about right, uh, not enough, or 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 too much? Do we want to critique what America is doing so far? Uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll go first, and I'll, I'll say I think we're about right. I mean, I, th I think I love sending in the missiles. I think that's good. Um, the aircraft, maybe that's a that's a marginal case. Uh, there's no support in America to put boots on the ground, and no popular support at all. So I think that's off the table for the time being. Um, and but I don't think we should be doing any less either. So I'm, this, this is a rare moment of where I'm going to praise Biden's handling of a of foreign policy, but. Uh, are there other 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 thoughts? One way or the other. I, 
Yeah, I, I myself, so go ahead. Bill Mulligan, yeah. I, I think I agree with you. I can't think of anything else he could have done where the risks don't outweigh the potential reward. I mean, allowing, you know, trading, sending Poland fighter planes so they can give their their MiGs to the uh, Ukraine the Ukrainians. Well, they have to get somehow from, you know, they have to fly there. Yeah. That's, that's an extremely provocative action. Um, you know, American soldiers on the ground, I have no question that we could subdue the Russian army in a conventional warfare fairly quickly. Um, but then what? Um, we, you know, we're in another sort of endless... You know, we don't need another forever war. Um, and I think we may have to accept, you know, there are limitations on our power because our power is so overwhelming that we can't just send in the 82nd Airborne and take care of everything because there are consequences of that that we really can't, can't shouldn't, you know, not, not take into account. Um, the thing that worries me a little bit, to go back to backtrack and then we'll let other people respond to your question, I worry about, though, giving any credibility or any uh, acceptance to Putin's sort of saving Russian speakers from discrimination, which has been part of some of the rhetoric. Because yeah. there's Russian speakers in, in, in eastern Poland. There's probably yeah. Russian speakers in East Germany. Sure. Um, that's a can of worms if we if you give them any legitimacy on that. And then what about the rest of Europe? Uh, you know, is it be Alsace Lorraine all over again? I mean, none of the European nation state borders are actually ethnically, or maybe some of the smaller countries, but even in Spain, when I was in Spain, a lot of people I was in northern Spain, I was in Galicia, and people made a point of that we were in Galicia. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. Spanish food. It was Galician food. And by the way, we'll let uh, someone else answer the original question. All right. Well, I think we're just about at the halfway point of the show over here. One thing that I think I'd like to get to as we move into the second half, I've, I've been hearing a lot, and you guys have all been talking a lot about the rational side of Vladimir Putin, that he kind of is a realist and all that. Would a realist allow the obvious problems that come with either chemical and or nuclear war to actually happen? Uh, I just throw that out there, and, and I and I let it, let's let it hang for a few seconds while we do what we typically do on all of our Central F radio shows, and especially on our Noble Hearts Forum shows. We kind of sit back for a few minutes and let it all settle down because we need something a little calming, and that calming thing is a little jazz. <laughs>
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Center Left Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident and as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Center Left Radio, thank you. We're back. And uh, we're back with a Noble Hearts Forum panel we're discussing Russia and Ukraine, just about every angle of it. And uh, when last we left our panel, the thought that was floating out there was just how rational is this guy Putin? Is he rational enough to realize, and I, I, I gather something that we all have to realize here, is that if you go the route of chemical and or nuclear mechanisms, inject those into the process, they will lead to additional usage of that. Does his rationality include playing chicken with the West over chemical and or possibly nuclear weapons? Or should we accept the possibility that he's rational enough not to use them and redirect our methodology, the Western U.S. NATO methodology of dealing with him accordingly? Hey, he would never go that far. Does that make sense, Charles? Does that make sense at all? Um, again, having met him in 1986 in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, when we were both young men, and having chatted with him in German, which he speaks extremely well, his, like our rationality, extends only to a certain point. And there's a breaking point. And my take on him is that his breaking point is when he feels he's losing control of the situation. And losing control of the situation in this case 
has two dimensions. First, there's the domestic situation. Mm. Is he losing control over his own uh, general staff and closest subordinates? And the second is the Ukrainian situation. Is his army losing control over the situation? If one of those happens, I don't know whether he would escalate further with the use of chemical, biological, and or nuclear weapons. If both of those happens, I predict he would. Mm. I think predict he would rather take down everything and everyone with him. Therefore, I'm not a big proponent of the let's get rid of Vlad the Terrible and everything's going to be hunky-dory. I don't accept that for a minute. The cold and hot wars between the United States, in particular in Russia, are over 100 years old dating back from American-British intervention during the Russian Civil War, and they did it on behalf of the counter-revolutionary white regiments. The Czechs, by the way, were also involved in that. He knows this. He has what you might call a revisionist view of history, but it's a very Russian view of history. It's a very Russian, conventional, almost czarist view of history, and it is very popular. It appeals to the Russian desire for one people unique in world history with the Russian soul. I speak Russian. I've heard this a million times from everyone, from Putin down to the train conductors. I was on a train in southern Russia once, and the train conductor came around because he heard there was an American on the train who spoke Russian. Could he please interview me? And... One of his questions, and it really astonished me in terms of his level of ignorance and naivete, but also his level of directness and candor, was, do you have trains in the United States? <laughs> you know, so my, what was your answer? <laughs> do we have efficient trains? <laughs> do we have fast trains? <laughs> <laughs> but Charles, can I ask you though, I know I was uh, getting, let me finish. Okay, I know yeah. I was getting off the beaten track there, but my impression, and it's an old one, but it's been corroborated by everything I've seen and read since, is that Putin is a master manipulator, a master of organizational bureaucratic dominance. And if he feels he can no longer manipulate and he can no longer dominate, all cards are off. And at that point, he could become extremely impulsive and vindictive. If there were a national vote of confidence in Putin today, uh, would he win that vote? 60 plus percent. Hmm. At least. The Levada Institute in Moscow, which is the one that Westerners rely on for their polling about attitudes in, in Russia, puts popular support of the war the last time it polled them was a few days ago at over 80%. However, there's a huge however, my Russian sources in Moscow say the Levada Institute has become a partisan propaganda tool for the Kremlin while posing 
as nonpartisan and independent. But to the average Russian today, uh, is life getting better or worse since Putin's uh, gambit? The sanctions haven't hit the middle class yet. No. When they hit the middle, when they hit the middle class, that could be a turning point. How about inflation? Has that hit the, the middle class in Russia? I'm not sure because the statistics are all manipulated, and Russia still is energy independent from the rest of the world. I'm going to throw something out here and just uh, take this or don't, as you as you as you guys feel fit. We're talking about. America pretty much in a united front with NATO at this stage in the game. We're also talking about an America that's approaching a midterm election. There have been several comments made about the fact that there's been an unusual degree of cohesiveness among the political parties, at least so far as it involves our view towards the entire Russian-Ukrainian situation right now. What I'm hearing from you guys is that this sounds like it's going to be, however this plays out, it's going to be a long-term situation that we're going to have to deal with. Can the American position be maintained in a cohesive way and in a sufficiently cohesive way to keep us interlocked with our NATO allies without falling into the political garbage we've been falling into for a whole bunch of years now, especially at a moment like this? Or are we subject to losing our focus as Republicans and Democrats coming together for this particular purpose, at least anyway. Can it continue or will the politics of the midterms and, and, on, and on from there basically really weaken America's position? Any thoughts? Well, there's, I mean, there's a strong, you know, sort of preparing for this and thought about you know, the levels of American policy. And I'm going to, just going to throw out five labels, pacifism, fortress America, the Monroe Doctrine, collective security, and world cop, you know, from least aggressive to most. I'd say we're about at level four, collective security, but a lot of people would like to retreat back to Monroe Doctrine or Fortress America. And interestingly, on on the left and and the right, um, you know, Trump wanted to get out of NATO. Tucker Carlson doesn't want any, any part of Ukraine um, there are people on the left that feel the same way. It seems sort of at the extremes. I think the difference is the right feels that, you know, we're too good for the world. We shouldn't bother with them. And the left feels the world is too good for us and we shouldn't pollute them by interfering. <laughs> but they sort of but they sort of come come around to the same thing that we should just you know, leave everybody alone and stick to our knitting. I think that the center left and center right, this being center left radio, are pretty well invested in NATO and collective security and the rest of it. Um, so someone on probably more likely on, on the right could, could come in at, in, the, in a Republican primary with a sort of hard isolationist, uh, program. And that, you know, that's, that's my thing. And I'm sure some Republican will come up with a pro NATO program and then we'll have democracy. We'll have debates and primaries and the Republicans will decide which way they want to go. Um, I, I think it's less likely to have that kind of insurgency on the left, although you might have some real, you know, far out progressive candidates on the left that say, you know, why, why are we, you know, why are we spending money on NATO and children starving in cities, you know, the, that, you know, that, that line. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the way I would see it playing out. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's possible it depends on who people vote for. 
But I, I think we could, you know, we, we stayed in the Cold War for 50 years. We held the line. And yeah. as long as Americans aren't dying, I think when guys are dying, that's a different situation. People won't put up for that for more than a couple of years. But sanctions, high oil prices, eh, you know, could live with that. That's my guess. Well, I think that the Biden administration is going to have to do a better job of explaining how inflation is linked to standing against Russia and supporting the Ukraine. I'm seeing a lot, particularly from more conservative people, who they just they 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 don't see that. They don't see how they don't, well, of course most people don't understand how the world oil market works. Mm. I'm not sure I do. I've spent a lot of time, <laughs> and I've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. Yeah. The Saudis pretty much. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think Biden's going to have to really communicate, and that's not, in my opinion, one of his real strengths. He can't. He's not as. Well, and part of it's not his fault. I mean, he, he has a stuttering issue, um, but he's not as articulate as some previous presidents. And now that he has, is going to have to level with people about some hard things. This is going to be, yeah, this is going to be a long haul. Putin's not going to yeah. go home unless something unforeseen happens. And that's going to impact the, the price of oil at some point, And we still haven't resolved supply lines, supply chain issues. A lot of our problems are due yeah. to the supply chain, yeah. um, not being able to get things into the country. The truck driver shortage. Who would have thought we'd have a truck driver shortage? Apparently they can't, you know, there's not enough people to drive the trucks. Their wages are sky high. So there's a whole lot going on, a whole lot of moving parts. And I think the crisis in Ukraine just brings it all into focus and gives it a little bit of a boost. But Biden's going to have to start explaining to people because they're tired from the pandemic. And now this, and he's in charge. Now, whether it's, I had a, I had a Facebook post yesterday. You know, it's not really his fault. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's not really his. He's not the one who moved the American industry to China. That goes back a long, long time. And, and yet. <laughs> but he's in charge now. And so people are going to hold him accountable for things that were set in motion 30 years ago, 40 years ago. By big I corporations. Say, though, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I am concerned about how he's framing this uh, as uh, it's democracy versus autocracy. To me, that's a very superficial framing. And I don't know how far you can go with that when the rest of the world looks at the state of democracy in the United States and has a lot of question marks about it. I think he's got to have a more realistic framing. It's a very idealistic framing. And I just don't know if that's uh, connected to the world we're in. Um, and I want to go back to China. I uh, I think we've missed the boat in getting tougher with China. I think we should be doing just the opposite, is trying to use this as a way to attract China to rethink its alliance with Russia. And you might say it's a waste of time. I don't, I don't think it is. Having been to China, I've never been to Russia. Having been to China as part of a delegation, I came away uh, feeling that they are the next, uh, maybe not the, the world power, but at least our equal and maybe that's the best thing for the world is to not have one superpower, but to have a so-called balance of power. So I just think his rhetoric isn't a way to keep the lines of communication open with a so-called autocrat like Xi. I'd rather he were more open to talking with him and not making it us versus them. China is the them. 
Bill, you are the ultimate uh, political person here on this panel. Uh, what should the democratic message sound like? If you were writing it, how would you vary what is coming out of the White House and, and, and uh, President Biden right now? Well, it's a challenge. Obviously, no one's been able to come up with a winning democratic message other than a losing message is we ain't them. And that's been the democratic message, right? That's not going to work. It's it really almost, 2020. <laughs> well, it did, you know, but it really it, it didn't yet. It really didn't yet. It didn't. Um, by the way, the key for me politically is the are people who voted for Obama in 2012, Trump in 2016, and Biden in 2020. To me, that's the quintessential swing voter. They may not show up in the midterms, but they'll show up in 2024. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't. Uh, I don't have a, a, a real good answer to that question of the winning message. Other than things had better be going better between now and November. Yeah. Things like yeah. inflation. Yeah. Things like yeah. the international situation. Uh, things like the job market. Things like unemployment. If those are all trending in the right direction, um, the Democrats could pull a big surprise in terms of the House. I do think the Senate, the Democrats, will uh, be as at least as good or if not better on the Senate just because we have the, the numbers are in our favor. Uh, it's Republicans who are not running for re-election. Open seats, you always got a, a chance. Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't have a, a good answer to your question, Richard. Yeah. Yes, Charles. The questions I pose don't have simple or even complex answers. And I know that simply mentioning this, as Bill did, Bill Arnon did, as a, uh, a recollection of the Cuban Missile, I call it the Cuban Missive Crisis, <laughs> because it was ultimately resolved by missives, not missives. Can this crisis be resolved in the same way? In other words, if you draw a parallel and I think there is one to be drawn, I agree with Bill, between the beginning stages of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the beginning stages of this crisis, and we're still only in the beginning stages, is there a way out that saves space for Putin while preserving much, but not all, the territorial integrity of Ukraine? And I say yes, and it's very simple. And the way out is Ukraine becomes Finlandized. And that's not meant pejoratively. It's meant, and I just came from Austria, which was the subject of a similar discussion in the early 1950s between the United States and the Soviet Union about the status of Austria if you let Germany become part of NATO. What happens to Austria, Hitler's birthplace? Although there's a joke in German, which is the following. Uh, Austrians claim Beethoven as Austrians, and Germans claim Hitler as Austrian. <laughs> the Austrians don't want to be blamed for Hitler, and neither do the Germans. It's a joke about the mentality in Central and Eastern Europe. And it applies in this case to the relationship, as I saw it, between Ukrainians and Russians. In this case, Russians being the equivalent of Germans and Ukrainians being the equivalent of Austrians. It's not a far-fetched comparison. I've spent a lot of time in those countries at research institutes and otherwise. 
and the Ukrainians have an inferiority complex vis-a-vis the Russians for many reasons going back many centuries, just as the Austrians have an inferiority complex vis-a-vis the Germans. So how do you deal with that? Well, the solution in 1955 was to make Austria neutral, non-aligned, not part of NATO, but eventually part of the European Union. And I think that applies here as well. I think... Let's finish my last sentence. I think if there is successful mediation to get back to the the possibility of Chinese intervention, I do think there is a possibility along these lines, along with the French and Turks and the Israelis, the, the way out to save Putin's face and to preserve two-thirds of the integrity of Ukraine is its uh, political neutralization with the prohibition against any weapons of mass destruction in the country, but allowing it eventually to be part of the European Union. That's a simple formula. That's the Finland formula. That's the Austrian formula. That's, Bill, the Irish formula, all of which are independent, part of the European Union, but not part of NATO. I mean, I guess from the Ukrainians, let, let's say that's not a, not a terrible deal, but what, what would be the credibility and what would be the guarantees? Russia has already agreed on paper in the Bucharest memorandum to respect the existing borders of Ukraine. There were, assur- quote, assurances, and you see how, how much good that did. So do we take, you know, are we taking the Russians' word for it? Oh, we promise no, never, we're not to, taking the never to invade again. You're, well, you're having it monitored by the OSCE, which monitors at the present time Bosnia and Kosovo. Yeah. The OSCE has had very influential offices. I've been in them, mm-hmm. both in Kiev and in Moscow. But the one in, in Kiev has been shifted to Lviv. Let's go back, though, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I agree, that's a great precedent to learn from. Remember, it ultimately led to the demise of the two leaders of those countries. Uh, It ultimately led, in my view, to to President Kennedy's assassination, and it certainly led to Khrushchev's removal. And the key to it, if you remember, was a secret deal. It was, okay, we won't publicize this, but we'll uh, get get rid of it. What I call the guided missiles. Yeah, exactly. So I do think there are lessons to be learned, but there is a price to pay if you follow that model and you're either Putin or Biden. Uh, it's a, a very a severe price to pay. Sorry to have frozen. Biden is probably <laughs> not going to run for... I can't see Biden running for re-election. And that should give him some leeway to do things that might be politically unpopular, but that he can try to sell as in the interests of world peace and the best way out. Um, he's already what seventy-seven or seventy-eight, yeah. and, he, 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 and I just don't, you know, I just don't see him being a viable candidate. He's even setting aside the baggage he's accumulating, um, so he he may have a chance, you know, that to depoliticize some of this. Uh, if he announces, I'm not going to run for re-election. I'm going to fo- remember what LB Day J did in Vietnam. Yeah, I'm not going to run for re-election. Yeah. I'm going to devote myself to solving this problem. And if you can give Putin, yeah, probably the key is giving Putin a way out that he sees as face-saving huh. and survivable. Because, yeah, what Khrushchev, I mean, you, you got, I forget, 
But you can even go back to the czars. You know, the czar who lost World War One. Well, he didn't lose. That didn't turn out very well. The czar. <laughs> no. I mean, there's, there's this whole series of every time a Russian ruler loses a war, there's a, yeah. there's a new ruler. <laughs> well, it's an in, it's and, an interesting form of succession. Uh, this is an interesting form of speculation. This forum has. Uh, had a lot of thoughts thrown out there. I think we, we've, we've stayed, I think, Charles, I think we've stayed largely on topic. I, I, think, I think looking at the political, the American political situation is also a helpful thing to notice since that's going to have a huge uh, influence on how we ultimately respond. And I think we've, we've covered a lot of it, but there's just too many unknown. This is, this is another one of the Rumsfeldian knowable unknowables or however he, he discussed it. We're in an unknown era and we are at still a very much beginning point. As I said earlier, we, you know, we, we had our last show on February 7th. I, I, I describe it as a geologic age ago. And, and I think if we were to have another show a month from now, I can only imagine what we would be talking about. But I think what, what we have to accept is that this is an evolving situation. And uh, fortunately, uh, we have some excellent minds able to discuss and to dissect what is before us right now, but there are obvious limits. And uh, as they say in baseball, that's why they play the games. So, uh, and by the way, thank goodness, and we, and we are going to play them, by the Yay. way, that, that, that just came out. I know I'm yeah. talking to a Dodgers fan right now, an L.A. Dodgers two fan. Two of us, Charles, oh, too. You're all right. Two of us, yeah. <laughs> I think it's great to be able to end this on a relative high note. Uh, there aren't a lot of them right now, but, but one thing for certain, there will be more Noble Hearts forums, and we will have no lack of things to discuss. We will be getting to a show on social insurance in the not too far distant future, Bill. I know well, you. Rich, now that you've said that, I want to just make one uh, statement because someone's going to ask. You better me, not be backing you, out. <laughs> you did this podcast uh, wearing your social insurance hat. Ah. The fact is, Ukraine has one of the most sophisticated and well-developed social insurance programs in the world. That's fascinating. So wow. that tells you something about Ukraine. Wow. Wow. Well, we we know where we're going and. Uh, between social insurance and uh, Russia and Ukraine and American politics and everything else, I think this has a this this has legs for a while. Uh, what it also has is uh, a time to end, and that time always includes pretty much what we do during the uh, the mid phase of these shows, and that is to kind of chill out, think about what we've been talking about, and there's a lot to think about, and do that with a little more jazz.
You've been listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you for being part of today's show. My special thanks to today's panelists, Dr. Charles Webble, Dr. Bill Mulligan, John Cugini, and Bill Arnone. Your insights have given all of us a broader and deeper understanding of the Ukrainian crisis and how it may evolve. That, that's what these Noble Hearts forums are all about, examining and thinking and understanding. And we plan to have many more of them in the weeks and months ahead. So keep listening to Center Left Radio and have a great day.